Mark chapter 6. So, you know, coming into Mark 6, this is going to be a little change of pace as far as the tone a little bit, I guess, because, you know, in Mark 5, we just talked about there are three amazing miracles. Jesus shows that he has control over demons. He cast out thousands of spirits. We know that because they went in that herd of swine that went running down the hill. Delivered this man that was lusting human, we said. I mean, he was in a very bad way. And granted him deliverance, and he was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ from there on out, right? Then he goes over to the other side of the lake. They asked him to leave. The people over there in the Gadarene area, they didn't want his blessing. They wanted to keep their money. He was messing with their pocketbook. They asked him to leave, so he gets in the boat, goes back where he came from. Because God sent him over there to meet a couple needs of people that were waiting. And so here's the man of the synagogue, Jairus. He's got a daughter that's dying. The Lord doesn't get there any time too soon. And he goes to raise her up. And as he's walking along, here's a woman that had a long-standing problem. Twelve years issue of blood. And she just gets behind him, touches the fringe of his garment by faith. Just a touch is all it took. And power, it says, came out from him. And immediately she was healed. And then we said he had a confrontation with her in a good way. He wants to talk to her. (laughs) She's one of his now. He says, daughter, thy faith has saved thee. Then he goes on and raises up that daughter. We're learning lessons from all this. He puts all the doubt and unbelief out where he's believing. And goes in and raises that little girl up. Has to encourage that father along the way. And he will encourage us, won't he, in our faith when we need it. That's the kind of God we serve. And Peter goes on in Acts chapter 9 and basically reproduces that miracle. He learned from his Lord. Put them all out, put all the mourners out, and went in there and raised up Dorcas. Amen, right? So he's training his disciples, and by reading the account, he's given us some training too. That's what we should be getting out of it. And so the training continues right here in Mark chapter 6. And so beginning in verse 1, it says, And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many, hearing him, were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon, and not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. But he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. You know, when Greg and I were in grade school, there was a boy we knew that was from Tennessee. His family came up from Tennessee. Now, he was a little bit overweight, and he dressed kind of sloppy. In fact, when he became a teenager, he never got overdressing sloppy. One time he got pulled over driving late at night for being a suspicious-looking character. We always laughed about that because he, he was very innocent. But he dressed sloppy. He was overweight. Didn't seem to care much about anything. And then one day at school, this is grade school, they had one of those show-and-tell type days. So he brings his guitar, and he stands up in front of the class And, you know, based on what I knew about this guy, I was not expecting much at all. He gets up there and starts playing. He is like a professional. I think, was it sixth, seventh grade? I don't remember the first time he played. It was sometime in a grade like that. And he plays the theme song from the Beverly Hillbillies. 
But he played it just like you'd hear it on TV. I mean, it was just like, I'm just like, I can't believe it. And then he'd sing the words. He knew all the words. And we're just rolling laughing. You know, it's just hilarious. But th this guy can do this? I mean, I was astonished. I couldn't believe how good he was. Right? Just amazing. And that's kind of what we have here with Jesus coming in here, right? He's coming back to his hometown. And their reaction is they cannot believe what they're hearing. They're like, we can't believe this preaching. It says they're astonished. But they're also offended. They're like, yeah, we knew you. You grew up with us. You're the guy that used to borrow our saws and hammers, you know, and now you're telling us how we should live, what we should think, all these miracles taking place. They're just like, they're offended at him. You're no better than us. What are you doing here? So that's not the first time, though, that Jesus had come back to his hometown of Nazareth. It wasn't, because he'd come back to Nazareth right after, if you remember, we'll look at it here in Luke's account, he'd gone out into the wilderness, and the Spirit had led him out there, and it says that he came back full of the Spirit, and everything was noised about his ministry. So look over in Luke 4. We'll just read it. Be the easiest thing. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Luke 4, 14, and it says this, And Jesus returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and he sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And they all in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went on his way. So he reads Isaiah 61, and when he reads that, there is something about the way he read that. The Spirit of God is on him. There's an anointing on that. People can recognize that. And he reads that and sits down, and it says every eye, every single person in that synagogue is looking on him. Every eye is fastened on him. So they recognize something about his anointed word. Something special is going on there. But then they're asking themselves the same thing. 
Is this not Joseph's son? The carpenter's boy? Isn't that who this is? And he says, hey, listen, you're going to demand of me a miracle like that your hearing's being done all around the region in Capernaum. But because you don't have faith, it won't happen is what he's telling them. And then he gives them two examples out of the Old Testament of Elijah and Elisha, the two greatest prophets besides Moses. All kinds of miracles happened in their ministry. And he says, even though those two great prophets were in the midst of Israel, nothing happened except to the Gentiles because they were willing to believe. He says there's many widows in Israel during the famine, but it was only to Elijah that one was sent to feed. And that was that widow woman, the Gentile woman of Sidon. And then he says, there's a lot of lepers in Israel during Elisha's day, but only one leper was cleansed, and it wasn't one from Israel. There was a lot of them in Israel. He said, no, it was Naaman the Syrian, and he's naming another Gentile. And he's telling them, guess what? The people in the synagogue, they got it. They got what he was saying, because what's he doing? He's exposing Israel's unbelief, and they are offended. He's saying they are the people of Israel. They should have trusted God. They're his chosen people. They're the ones that he'd given the word. They're the ones that had seen his faithfulness all these times past. And does that not speak to us? Amen. It does. No excuses. And they got it. And it says they were filled with rage. And they take him out to a hill. They're going to throw him down. They're going to kill him. Could you imagine that? Taking Jesus? Someone's leading him out? And that crowd, can you imagine that? They're going to lead him down there where their intention is. They're so mad at him for telling them the truth. That shows the sinfulness of a wicked hard heart, a hard heart of unbelief. They're going to throw him down a hill and kill the Son of God. Now, how it happens, I don't know. But it says he walked through their midst and escaped out of their hands. So let's go back to Mark chapter 6. That's the first time he'd come back to his hometown. Some commentators will say they think the Luke 4 account and the Mark 6 account are the same account. I don't believe it is. I think it's two different times. So he's been around the Sea of Galilee. He's been in Capernaum. Because remember, he says, you're going to say what we heard done in Capernaum, do here. He's predicting the future. And that's what's coming to pass here. So he's been at the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum's right there on the Sea of Galilee, performing all kinds of healing and miracles. His fame's gone before him. Words out everywhere about him. And he comes back to his hometown. His own country, his hometown of Nazareth, it's not a big town. They estimate the crowd, the population of Nazareth was probably around 200. At the most, it would have been 500. I mean, when our church is filled up, that's what we have here. Everybody knows everybody in Nazareth, right? You don't have any secrets in Nazareth. You might have a few secrets here, but there weren't any secrets probably going on in Nazareth. Everybody knew everybody for sure. And so he goes into the synagogue and teaches there. And it says, the many hearing him, it's the same thing again. It says they're astonished at what he's saying. They're amazed at him, but not in a good way. Not in a good way. So they recognize there's an anointing on his teaching. They declare, where did this wisdom come from, right? And they know the miracles they've heard about him, but they talk about him in not a nice way. It's a derisive way that they talk about him. They don't call him Jesus. They said, whence has this man? That's the way the Greek is, this man. They question the source of his ability. From where does this man get all this that he's doing? 
they really don't have any respect for him, right? You could paraphrase it this way. From where does this guy have these things? And what is the wisdom given to this guy and the miracles such as are t- taking place through his hands? This guy is the carpenter, isn't he? The son of Mary. That's the way they're talking about him. That's the way you could paraphrase it in the Greek. So where's this wisdom and power coming from? They're asking. Now, they aren't quite as bad as the Pharisees. What did the Pharisees say? Well, we know where it's coming from. He's doing it by the power of the devil. Now, these people aren't going quite that far, but they're getting pretty close to it. And we know from Mark 3 that his family did what? They're coming to get him. They're saying he's beside himself. He's going off the deep end. And we need to bring him back home, right? They think there's something wrong with him. So the bad reports are spreading. They're getting back to Nazareth. They're going all over the place about Jesus. So the people here, they're saying, you know what? This guy, he's just a carpenter. Isn't that what it says there? Verse 3, is this not the carpenter? He's never been trained. Who's he teaching us? Where's these miracles taking place? Back then, a carpenter was in a certain social class. You didn't move up and down like you do here. I mean, we'll have people that were hayseeds that become president of the United States, and we think that's great in America. Not back then. You stayed in the social class you were in. And they're saying, hey, he's just a carpenter who's never been trained by a famous rabbi. And look at these guys. At the beginning, it says he brings his disciples with him. Well, I'm saying it wasn't an impressive group. You know, he's got tax collectors, which everybody hated, fishermen. He's got a zealot, a guy that's basically a rebel against the Roman government. And this is the group that he's bringing with him and has following him. It's a hodgepodge of questionable characters, is be the way to say it. Now, carpenters weren't despised like tax collectors, but a carpenter, listen, they were considered to be uneducated and uncouth. They weren't considered to be sophisticated people. They weren't upper echelon people, right? And I'm saying, we're going to have to deal with that. I'm not looking at a bunch of educated, sophisticated people. None of us are, are we? Does anyone want to raise their hand and say, no, I'm the exception? We'll let you give a quick testimony here, right? I'm saying we have to deal with that when this is what we're going to learn from that. I'm saying if you all haven't experienced it, especially if you're a construction worker and you're trying to witness to somebody. So I remember a few years back, I won't give the guy's name, but he was a newspaper publisher. He had a newspaper here in Shelbyville and I think a couple in Louisville. And I'm over at his house working and I'm working there with Brian McNew. And we're just talking about something. I don't know what it was. Might have been theology. Who knows? But He's surprised at the words I'm using. Makes a comment about it. So he's like, well, most painters I know, you know, they're just uneducated drunks. And I thanked him. I said, well, at least I'm not a drunk. And I probably am uneducated. That's what he told me. Because I'm hearing you talk. I don't normally hear construction people talk like that. Well, how do most construction people talk? So I'm saying you've got this stigma attached. You're trying to witness to somebody. It's like, who are you to talk to me? That's what they're doing with Jesus, right? This is just a carpenter. And if he'd have come out of Jerusalem and come out of the seminary down there with all that education and all that, they'd have a whole lot less time accepting what he had to say. He's just one of them. Is this not a carpenter? Like I was saying, when I worked for upper class people, that's what I, kind of people I painted for, people with a lot of money, so I could charge them a lot of money. No, not really. It didn't make near what I want. But I'll tell you what I experienced. I'm saying this is what... If you, you should be sharing with people that you have jobs for if you're a construction person or anybody, right? Isn't that what it's all about? We're trying to witness to people. 
The high-end people need Jesus as much as the low-end people do, right? But I'll tell you what I would run into. I would share my testimony with them. You know, as a way to not be too offensive. And I'd share, you know, this is what the Lord's done in my life. And instead of them being convicted, they would look at me like, you poor wretch. You needed Jesus. <laughs> Obviously, you needed Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, I really did. Thank you. And I'm glad he came in my life and changed me. And I was a poor wretch. Amen to all that, right? What we need to remember is we're not responsible, are we, for how people receive our testimony or if we share the gospel. That's what we're seeing here. There's people, they're going to despise you. They're going to look down on you. They're going to say, who are you? you know? They're going to reject you because, man, you're not a priest. You're not a minister. You're not even on the radio. And that's where I get all my religious information from. Those kind of people, right? But you need to realize is, Paul, when he preached, he had an anointing on him big time. And even Jesus, they weren't always accepted, were they? So many times you read about Paul in the book of Acts, and what does it say? Some believed. Most didn't. And so we're after the some, aren't we? Right? So he says, hey, the Great Commission is you go out and you preach to every creature, whoever they are. Right? You don't cast your pearls before swine, but you're ready to share with anybody because we don't know who the some are. It's like they said, well, if we knew who the elect were and they had a marking on their forehead, we would only talk to them. But we don't know who they are. Only God knows that, right? And our responsibility is to share the gospel and leave the results in his hand. We'll get rejected. We've got to be willing to do that. And nobody likes to be rejected. We used to go and hand out tracts. It's just hard to take. And I'm thinking, they don't even know what I'm trying to hand them. It could be anything. It's nothing to take personal. I'm saying it's just hard to take rejection. You just never really get over it. But it's part of being a Christian. Part of the Christian life, isn't it? If you read Matthew 10, that's a good rejection chapter. Because Jesus says you're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to deal with the fact that people aren't going to like you. He says in Matthew 10, a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He also says in that chapter, you'll be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. He also says in that chapter, the disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? So you are probably going to be called a lot of names, if not to your face, behind your back. If you're a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. But hey, that happened to him. That happened to your Lord. Amen? It's a small price to pay. He's a lowly carpenter. And for your information, carpenters, they could work with stone. They could work with wood. They'd make plows, yokes, carts, wheels. They'd make things for houses, doors, frames, windows, beds, tables, lampstands, cabinets, and chests. This is a little parentheses aside. It's free information, and I'm going to make you more spiritual. I don't watch these Jesus movies, but when you see them, whatever, occasionally, they always make him out to be some wimp, some soft-spoken wimp. I'm telling you, a carpenter back then would be like a carpenter today. They'd have some of those, you know, spinach-eating forearms on him. He was a rugged guy, I'm telling you. Jesus was not a wimp. He would have been a rugged person. It's interesting, there's this writing that was back then, the Sirach. So this Sirach 38 says this, talking about carpenters or artisans. The skillful artisan who works with his hands is commended. And listen to what they say. So they weren't put down, but it is assumed 
that his business keeps him from ever becoming wise like the saints. So like a guy like that doesn't have the leisure time, which those scribes and Pharisees would to just sit around and read their Bibles and talk philosophy and Bible talk. No, the artisan's working. He doesn't have time to do all that kind of stuff. And they're saying, hey, we like him. We need him to build our houses and our tables and our chairs. But he says they're never going to become wise like the saints. And so what are they questioning here? You look at here, they said, is not this the carpenter? And this second comment, this is a dig at him. They call him the son of Mary. And what's that doing is there's an implication there about his birth that it may be questionable. Because at that time, just like now, you, you get referred to if you're a man by your father's last name. And so then you would be called Jesus, son of Joseph. That's the way it was, whether your father was dead or alive. Because some people say, well, Joseph might have been dead, so they're calling him Mary. So, no, you always did that. So they're digging at him. Like, we're questioning your birth. Because that's what went around back then in that day. That's just the devil's way of getting at the Son of God, right? So they're like, we don't know who your father is, son of Mary. They go on to say, we do know who your brothers and sisters are. And they named four brothers. They don't name the women. You wouldn't have named the women back then. It's just the way things were. But we know he had at least two sisters. So you know he had at least four brothers and two sisters. The Catholics will try to say they were cousins. The reason is, is they want to say Mary was a perpetual virgin, always a virgin. They have a word in the Greek language for cousin. And they could have used that. They would have used it if it was cousins. These are his brothers and sisters. Real flesh and blood, brothers and sisters. So they're looking at all this. The town people are. They're looking at his occupation, his questionable birth, his family life. And it says, what does it say there at the end of verse 3? It says, and they were offended at him. So they couldn't believe somebody that worked beside him, that lived beside him, was one of them. They didn't believe somebody like that could teach them. And that's why he says a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, among his own kin, and in his own house. So it starts getting wider and narrower. He's saying, so the neighborhood you grew up in, they're not going to receive from you. They know you too well. And then it's just your kinfolk, all your cousins and uncles and aunts, they're around you more. And then he narrows it down even into his own family. No honor in any of those three places. You bring a speaker in from the outside, the further away he is, the more people like him. But the more they know you, hey, don't know if we can receive. And that's what we have to watch. We have to watch that we can receive things from each other, our peers, or people in our family, right? We can't look at people in here and think, well, man, you're just a plumber, a dent guy, a housewife. You know, you're not the kind, like I said earlier, you're not the kind of person that I receive things of the Lord from. We have to not look at it like that. We have to recognize that our brothers and sisters in here are spirit-filled. And God can and will and does speak through them, right? And so we don't need to tune them out. And there are times, I've heard some people, they talk a lot, but then there's times when, I don't know that that was the Lord, but I could tell right now, this is one of those times. You should have a witness inside of you when that happens. God's speaking through this person. And you've got to get over the fact that you may not like him that well. That's beside the point. The thing is, if God's speaking through them, you better like him a lot at that point, right? Because he has something to say. And that's why the despise not prophesying. Test it. 
But don't despise it, no matter who it's coming from. Because a lot of times that's the way God will test us. You know, I learned that in prison. Because I've learned that God can speak a lot of convicting and eye-opening words from convicted felons. Everybody I'm around in there, they are convicted felons. Now, granted, we got some guys that come up, and I'm saying they say the most crazy off-the-wall stuff you'd ever want to hear. You could almost write a book on it, and you're just like shaking your head. I mean, what spirit told you that? <laughs> I've never heard anything as crazy as that. But there's some of those guys in there, through the years, I've found they're regenerate people. And man, I've heard them say some things that have convicted me big time. I've heard a lot of wisdom come out of their mouths. A lot of things like that. So you can't look at somebody and be like, man, you're 12 years, you murdered your mother. I'm not going to listen to anything. You're a murderer. Well, listen, Paul was a murderer. I think he had a few good things to say. Amen. So we got to watch that. But listen, what was the real problem with these people? these people of Nazareth. What was their real problem? You know, a man named G. Campbell Morgan, a preacher a few years back, I thought he had a good insight into this. So I think the real problem with them is, is they were not willing to do the will of God. And here they are in the synagogue. So that seems kind of funny, doesn't it? Why would they be in the synagogue if they don't want to do the will of God? Isn't that why you come? Isn't that why we come to church? To know more about God and to learn to do His will? Well, listen, we've heard this verse a few times, and we're going to hear it again in Ezekiel 33. It's just not always the case. Ezekiel 33, it says, And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people. And they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goes after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that has a pleasant voice, and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do not do them. They do them not. And when this comes to pass, lo, it will come to pass. Then shall they know that a prophet has been among them. They've been around Jesus so long that they're hearing his words and they're saying they're astonished at his words. They're amazed. They know it's God speaking through him, but they can't receive him. They're not going to do him. Too familiar with him. And sometimes that can happen here. We get too familiar with the message, the word of the Lord, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've heard all these stories before, haven't we? And we hear them, and we just, we like to hear it again, but we've kind of set our heart to where we're not going to necessarily do them. And we've got to hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Bible fresh every time. We've got to take that approach. Take the word of God as a living word that will bring life to you. That's how we have to hear the word. Amen? And God will bless us for it. So look down here in verses 5 to 6. So he says, A prophet is not without honor his own country among his own kin and in his own house. In verse 5, And he could there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them and he marveled because of their unbelief. And as a man said, you know what's amazing about that is the people of Nazareth, they heard of all the miracles that he'd been doing everywhere else. And you think about it, they had just as big a needs there as everywhere else. But no one is asking this question. Why can't Jesus do here what he's doing everywhere else? That's amazing, isn't it? 
If I had a need, that'd be the first thing I'd be asking is, can you do that for me? Will you do that for me? But you don't see that here. No, they're offended with him. They're not looking to get a blessing from him. And so listen, we can do that ourselves, can't we? Can't we hear that Jesus is healing everywhere else? And my question is, yes. And why can't he meet us here? Amen? So I want to read you two things here. I've got this book I had to read for a missionary class. These people that wrote this book are not even spirit-filled. But this one guy wrote a book and he says, the Pentecostals are coming. And they're talking about they're coming into these foreign lands, these foreign mission fields. And they're having great success because the Spirit of God is with them. And they're prayed up. And so this man named Philip Jenkins, he wrote this in 2002, not that long ago in my mind. Unless you're 14, might be a long time ago, right? 2002 is just yesterday for me. But listen to what this man wrote. He said, the newest Christianity... The Christianity that is growing in Latin America and Africa, he maintains, is like the oldest Christianity of the New Testament, complete with dreams, prophecy, healings, and spirit exorcisms. These signs of power usually imply the concept of spiritual warfare, of confronting and defeating evil demonic forces. For African Christians, one of the most potent passages of the New Testament is found in the letter to the Ephesians. And we taught on this. Our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. And listen to what he says. However superstitious and irrelevant it appears to mainstream northern Christians... The passage makes wonderful sense in most of Africa as it does for believers in Latin America or East Asia because they need it. They have no other relief. And it's happening there. It is. And I'm saying, why can't we experience what they're calling ancient Christianity? It's up to date, isn't it? Dreams, prophecy, healings. We need all that here, do we not? We do. We need it here big time. This other missionary, Michael Pocock, he wrote this in 2003 about new believers in India. A number of new believers testified to rescue from demon possession and physical healing as the key factors in coming to faith. That's what brought them to faith, just like we see in the New Testament. Demons being cast out and people healing, it brought them to faith. All of them emphasized that it was not so much the act of a person casting a demon out of them that brought them to faith as the message of the gospel, which they believed in their desperation. Having believed, they had no further difficulties with demons. Others who were sick had gone to Christians to pray for them, and when these believers prayed and they were healed, they trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Several times, Pocock and his wife found themselves in the midst of humble, sick people asking for them to anoint them and lay hands on them in prayer, which they did. And it felt as though they were living in the New Testament. Now, I know a guy that was a missionary over in East Asia. He came back here, was teaching at the seminary, but went out in his neighborhood, just talked to one of his African neighbors, and the African neighbor was sick. Well, he's not thinking in his mind, I can go to a hospital and get help. He asked the missionary to pray for him. And the missionary I knew, he prayed for many people and prayed for him, and instantly the guy was healed, like overnight. I mean, that's here in America. That's just down in Louisville. It can happen. Amen. It really can. I, I knew another brother over there. 
that he was over, I forget the name, it was a North African country. Didn't even have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But he had the gospel. And people would come, told our classes, this happened more than once. They'd knock on his door, he'd open the door, here's somebody he'd never seen in his life before. Never talked to him, anything. A woman one time shows up, she said, God showed me in a vision. Now this has happened so many times, there's movies about this, to these Muslims. She was a Muslim. So I was praying to God. He showed me in a vision to come to you that you had the way you could direct me to eternal life. I mean, that's happening a lot over there. And God is moving. And he can move here. Amen? Amen. He really can. So it says there in verse 6 that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. And for those of you, maybe people know this, but you know, Jesus only marveled twice in the Gospels. One was in Matthew 8.10 when he heard the Roman centurion's confession of faith. It says there that he marveled at this faith this man had, this Roman. Here we are, a Gentile again, right? And he said to those that were following, truly I say unto you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Here's a guy that didn't have the scriptures. He just knew from the time he was over there in that Roman army. But he saw the Lord Jesus Christ in the simplicity of all that, right? And what he was doing, the command he had. And he realizes all he has to do is say a word. And my servant's healed, and I can trust that. Because it's just like when I give a command, things happen. And so the other time that it says he marveled, we're reading it right here. Mark 6, 6, marveled because of their unbelief. And it's just the opposite of the other reason that he marveled. Because the other place, he found faith where he wasn't expecting it. And here he expected to find faith and did not find it. He's thinking there should be faith here. That's why he's marveling. Jesus is walking this earth as a man. And he's marveling at that. He said, man, they've heard the anointed word from my lips. They've heard of all the miracles I've done. And here I am. I'm standing in front of them to give them everything they need. And they need what I have, right? A free gift from God. Those people could not afford to go to doctors. They didn't have that kind of money. And here Jesus is thinking, I'm standing in front of them, free medical care with no side effects. You see the stuff they advertise on TV where you take this and it'll cure your diabetes, but it's going to give you a heart attack maybe, right? And he's saying, I'm here with no side effects. Everything will be just right. Financially, these people struggled, all of them did, and he would meet all of their needs. They had to be needing salvation, deliverance from that burden of sin. He's right there to give it to them. And yet, he's marveling that they don't want it. God's free gift standing right in front of them. God's free gift is right here in our midst. He is. That's what the Bible says. Where two or three are gathered. He says, I am there in the midst of you. They refuse to believe it. And he's marveling at that. There's a story. This rich man gave his son a Bible. And he said he told him everything he needed for life was contained in this book. He gave him that book. And the son put the thing away. Put it in storage. He says, I don't need that crutch. I don't need that crutch of religion to get through life. And that boy ended up dying a pauper's death. And after he died and they're going through his stuff, cleaning out his house, they found his Bible. And when they opened it, there was a $100 bill between every page in there that his dad had left him. And he died a pauper. Right? So like the sun, everything was right under the noses of those people of Nazareth, but they refused to believe 
And they, guess what? They were left with nothing from God. Nothing. They got nothing. Isn't that what it says? He could do no mighty work. Save, save a few sick folk. They were the exception. They got nothing from God. So I was listening to David Wilkerson on this message, talking about unbelief. So I figured you could hear it from him. You might receive it a little easier than from me. And he said this. He says, unbelief produces a wilderness and hopelessness. Think about that. Unbelief produces a wilderness and hopelessness. And I'm hearing him preach this message. He's at age 76, just a few years before he died in that car crash. And he's talking. He's saying, somehow in his last years, he says, God keeps giving me continually these messages on the dangers of unbelief. And listen to what he said. I honestly believe that what is coming to this nation and the world, he told his people, you had better lay hold of faith. And I think that's a message we need to give heed to. He says, you'd better lay hold of it now because the testing time is coming when you will wonder, is this ever going to end? I guarantee you these people being persecuted in these other countries, you're being persecuted, you're taken away from your family, you're thrown in a cell, you're beaten, thrown back in the cell, they're trying to talk you out of your faith, they're threatening you. I mean, a day is going to seem like an eternity. And when persecution comes, our faith is going to be tested in that way. We need to be willing to endure. And the way we do that now is by enduring the trials God gives us today. And I think that's what he said. He said, the, the one thing, this struck me too. He said, the one thing that I could give God until my dying days is my confidence. Now, this is coming from a man that saw a lot of answers to prayer. He spent a lot of time fasting and praying and saw God move in a big time way and saw a lot of answers to prayer. He said, I can give him my confidence in his faithfulness. He said, because I can look back on my long life as a Christian and I can see all the times I trusted in God and he came through. Amen. And can we not do that? Give him our confidence with the rest of our life because he's faithful. Don't we talk about that all the time? Amen. Give him our confidence, our trust. Experience his presence and power here that we're hearing about elsewhere. Amen. Shouldn't that be our goal? I really think. Do we have to be like Nazareth? Do we? Do we have to be like Nazareth, receiving nothing because of unbelief? And I'm saying me personally, I think God is beginning to stir this church now. I honestly do. I'm not just saying that. I really do. But I think we need to let ourselves be stirred and seek his face. And if you're saying, man, I've struggled with unbelief. I know I'm not, haven't done things I should do like I've taught, like I believed in the past. Listen, we've got coming up in Mark chapter 9, that man with that epileptic boy, he was struggling. He says, Lord, if you can help me, and Jesus, if I can help you, he said, if you can believe. And what did he tell him? He said, I believe what we're talking about tonight, help thou mine unbelief. God will help you. He had to help that man because that boy would not have been delivered if that Jesus didn't help his unbelief and give him the faith for that boy to be healed. I'm telling you, that's what we're getting out of this. We've got to have faith for God to move. If there's no faith, nothing happens. That's the Bible. That's the New Testament. It's not just that we have a need. Now, let me close with this. 
I want to read you one other thing. I'm sorry to be reading so much tonight, but this came out of, I don't think it's in the new edition. They've chopped a bunch of stuff out of this book, but this came out of F.F. Bosworth, Christ the Healer. Listen to what he says. Now, F.F. Bosworth, for you who don't know it, would hold huge healing campaigns, and I mean all kinds of stuff would happen. And when he got the baptism of the Holy Spirit, him and John G. Lake and a bunch of those guys, they got the power that came with it. It wasn't just a few words and that was the end of it and they might have never prayed in tongues again. I mean, no, these guys prayed in tongues all the time. And their baptism came with power. There was an anointing in their ministry. But listen to what this man wrote. He said, God wants his compassion to be made known to the world as a basis for faith through the whole church with every member filled and kept filled with the Holy Spirit. God's wholesale dealing with men, both in saving and healing, now listen, is by the outpouring of his spirit and through a spirit-filled, united, and praying church. That is the key. A prayerless church is a dead church. We need to be praying as a church if we want to see God move. He went on to say a spirit-filled and praying church produces, listen, an atmosphere in which it is easy for God to work and hard for the devil to interfere. Because this atmosphere is the Holy Spirit himself who is more than a match for the devil. So you want to have a good atmosphere when you come into church? You want to say, man, it just seems dead in here. Hey, do your part. Intercede and pray, as we've heard all this time. But really do it. And not just five minutes before you get here. Do it during the week. Because this is when God will meet with us in a special way that's different than our individual lives. Amen? It really is. And we could experience that. He went on to say, some of our theology today causes many people to anchor in past blessings without a daily renewing of the fullness which constituted the initial blessing when they as Christians were filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, unless the church is filled and kept filled with the Holy Spirit, it is impossible that the spiritual atmosphere of the meetings can be what it must be if God is not to be limited or hindered. In this atmosphere produced by the whole church being filled with the Spirit and all praying for the work of Christ, the power of God is present to heal as it was at the beginning. God's way is for the whole church to be filled and kept filled with the same Holy Spirit which saved and healed those multitudes in new Testament times. And I say amen. <laughs> he had a whole lot more in there I would have liked to have read. I limited it to that. That's, that's enough. But he had a lot of other good things to say. And like I said, I don't think it's in the new edition of that book. They always cut out the best parts. I don't know why they do that, right? What I'm saying as a church, we need to dedicate ourselves afresh to pray to see his manifest presence in our individual lives, but also in our meetings. The gifts are for the church. You read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. He's not talking about that stuff goes on in your house. He's saying when you gather together. And we've got people in here that we need, I'm getting a little excited, the gifts of miracles and healings, amen, and discerning of spirits, spirits to be cast out. And if we as individuals aren't seeking, he says desire earnestly. And if we don't do that, how's it going to happen? What are we doing here? Why are we meeting? What's the purpose of our meeting? Amen? <laughs> so I'm reading this biography on Spurgeon. Spurgeon is the prince of preachers. 
Mr. Baptist preacher. Well, I didn't know this. This book is called The Forgotten Spurgeon. Well, I didn't forget. I never heard it before, but I've never, that's probably why everyone forgot about it. But I think he became a pastor at the age of 17. But at 22 years old, he became pastor of this church, 1859, and that church united in prayer for an outpouring of the Spirit. I'm saying, I've done a study on revival at school. That's always how it happens, people uniting in prayer. But in Spurgeon's church, that happened. And a revival took place, an outpouring of the Spirit, an unusual outpouring. And he was saying, the Prince of Preachers says he would walk up and get in the pulpit and said the presence of God was so strong that sometimes he didn't even preach. Could you imagine that? For him saying that. And he said he went back to that year the rest of his life. For 30-some years, he went back to that is when God met us and blessed us. And he's saying it's because you all prayed. And he told his people, and I could see why he would say this, he told his people, someone asked him, what's the success of your preaching? He said, it's because my people pray. He told his congregation, as soon as you all decide you're going to quit praying for me, please let me know. Because he says, that's when I'm going to another church. Because he didn't sit there and think it was because he had natural abilities and all that other. Every meeting, they had people down below that church, hundreds of them praying for him and the spirit to move, and it did. Amen? Now, I'm asking you all, pray for our church, pray for me, and pray that God will be here most of all, right? And the Lord Jesus Christ will be manifest in our midst, and joy will be the result. <laughs> we got kids, we got adults, we got people with major needs in this church. Take some time to fast and pray. Amen? That's what it'll take. And that's what we have to say tonight. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. Heavenly Father, I just ask, Lord, that in our church right here, Lord, that you'll look down and have mercy and that you'll cause us all, you'll move on us to make us people of prayer and that we'll seek your face, Lord, that we can see your presence manifest in our midst. And the things that we read about in the Bible can become a reality, Lord, and that joy and rejoicing will go forth. Amen. I just ask that you'll put it on our hearts to do that and that we will have a reason to meet because we know that we will experience you, the God of the universe, the living God in our midst. And I just thank you that you'll do that for us here and be glorified in our midst, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified here. And that's my prayer tonight for this church. And all of us said, Amen.